Hello, everybody. Welcome to Keys to Your Best Life. I'm your host, Maggie Cavanaugh, and I have a dear friend, mentor, amazing woman of God, author, uh, grandmother, just oh, <laughs> such a blessing, good friend, Sue McGray with me. And I am honored to have her here today on Keys to Your Best Life. My name is Maggie Cavanaugh. If you have not seen me before, feel free to subscribe to the YouTube channel. Uh, this will go out on platforms of Periscope, Facebook, and YouTube. Feel free to follow me. Get it out to someone who needs some encouragement because we are here today talking about Sue's story. Now, sometimes I'll do interviews and sometimes I'll have stories, but Sue is just an amazing woman of God. She grew up in a family where there was a whole issue of performance. And some of you could probably relate to that. How many of y'all grew up in a family where it's like, Everything needs to look just okay. And she felt always felt like she wasn't enough. She felt like she wasn't pretty or smart enough or talented enough. And it put her into a position of being extremely shy and insecure. And then in her teenage years, she experienced a life event that was tragic. And she's going to share that with us today, which led her into uh, going into an, uh, toxic relationships later on in life because she buried her feelings. And I'm so honored to have her here today. But first, before we get started, I want to talk about uh, Sue, my friend. Okay. So Sue and I have known each other for, gosh, about five years, six years. Yeah. Something yeah. like that. Yes. Yes. Sue, thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Maggie. I'm so honored because she's such a dear woman of God to me. Uh, Sue was our my Southeast uh, Southeastern Director of Christian Women in Media for the last several years. So over that time, we became very close, uh, working with her on her leadership team and just being um, so much I have learned from Sue about grace and uh, just the love of Jesus. She's like one of those people that when you meet her, she's like Jesus with skin on. You just want to hug her. You know? <laughs> she is so precious. But, she, you know, she's also an entrepreneur. And you guys know that I'm an entrepreneur. I, I, I think it's amazing. She has been, and now I know that this can't be right in her bio because she doesn't look old enough to have been in um she has, she's, there's no way you've been in this for 37 years in the cosmetic business for 37 years. You started yeah. when you were four, something like that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it looks like, uh, let's see today. She serves on the board with morning star sanctuary, a Christian safe place for women and their children. She also serves on the advisory board of Christian women and media and her hobby is oil painting. And later on at the end, I want to talk a little bit about her art because I believe her art, brings so much beautification to the world. But in addition to that, her art has brought a lot of healing into her life as well as lives of others. And she is married to Dwayne and I've met Dwayne. He is an amazing man. What a support system these two are. And they have three adult children and five granddaughters living in the Nashville area. But I want to talk to you about her book real quick. Okay. She has this book and I just want to read this portion to you. It says being visible by Sue McCray is a must read for every man and woman. You know, sometimes us women, we always think, that it's just about the women, but men can get something out of this. Recognizing their own feelings of being unseen, we can be aware of those around us who are hurting. With the awareness, which what makes us invisible, we can hone our skills to guide others to break out of their self-imposed limits. Wow, how powerful is that? And I will put in the chat stream where you can purchase this book, but I just want to show you the cover. I don't know. Let me see there. I hope y'all can see it. Beautiful cover. I love that, Sue. Love that. Can I, can I hold the book up? Yes, please hold the book up because there won't be a glare on my iPad. You can get it digitally. There we go. Bring it up. There okay. we go. Move it over. Yep. Be invisible. Letting God. What's the subtitle there? Letting go of the things that hide your true beauty. All those insecurities and, and fears and, and all that kind of thing. Just letting it go. It's not a small thing. No, it's not a small thing. It requires uh, to be courageous and a lot of work. And you've certainly done that over the years. So, Sue, uh, for the viewers watching today, uh, I want to start with when you were a kid. Because, you know, it, that's where it all starts. Uh, all of the trauma, all of the drama, all of the things that happened to us. And we think that, oh, well, that's just something that happened in my childhood. But for you, Sue, you had a lot going on. Can you tell the viewers a little bit about that season? Well, growing up, I, I grew up in a pastor's home, and so we had to be okay. We had to 
put on a good front, even if we worked. But um, if, if I acted up in the afternoons, which must be when I acted up, I must have had some kind of a little temper or something. Well, I had two older brothers and my parents would just take a peach tree, you know, lamb and, you know, swap them. But they didn't want to do that with me. They didn't mean any harm, but they did something that affected my life forever. And they locked me up in a smokehouse. Now, if you don't know what a smokehouse is, we lived in the country and that's where they smoked the, the meat, the, the hams and that kind of thing. Salted them down or smoked them or whatever. And so they locked me up in there. And, and through that, I locked down my feelings so that because I didn't want to be punished. So I, therefore, I wouldn't feel. And if I didn't feel, I wouldn't be ugly and get locked up in the smokehouse. And again, they didn't mean any harm. And, and I brought it up to my dad one time many years later. And I said, Daddy, why did you do that? And he said, oh, we can't talk about that. So that was, again, another one of those dysfunctional things but we can't bring this out in the open we can't talk about my feelings here and and so my feelings were totally locked down even as a small child and we know that repressing our feelings fear feelings buried alive don't die and so and also is it pushes things down and it makes room for those vain imaginations for the enemy to come in and tell us lies about ourselves yes. about others and i believe those lies i believe that i wasn't good enough I, I wasn't smart enough. I wasn't smart as other people. Beautiful women always intimidated me because mm -hmm. I wasn't like them. And so I just had a lot of, of insecurities. And, and I say I was shy. I think I was more insecure than shy. But, but that's kind of who made me who I was. And I tr truly felt invisible. And I'll share later on when the first time I realized that nobody could see me. Mm -hmm. They couldn't see me because I couldn't see myself. So well, but we'll go there. Yeah. Yes. Oh my goodness. That, you know, when I read the title of your book years ago, I was like, wow. Wow. Because so many people do, they, they feel unseen. They feel that their lack of uh, self-worth, their identity is, you know, and we try to measure up. I know I did when I was a kid, you know, trying to measure up and that is, that is real. It's very real. And not only in your child life, but women, adult women, that's why I love so much the tribe of women that we run with because we all love each other yes. and we're all free of a lot of that. Yes. And many of us years ago, I remember, matter of fact, I remember years ago, the first Christian women in media I went to, it was back whenever they were meeting in Nashville and I was in this big room that overlooked the city and all these are, you know, um, TV people and authors and speakers and singers and all this stuff. And I remember sitting there and now this was just like 10 years ago, maybe 11, I guess about 11 years ago. And I remember sitting there thinking, what am I doing here? I have nothing in common with these women. Yeah, I speak about Jesus, but you know, I mean, I really, even 10, 11 years ago, I was still in that place of thinking, I'm not good enough. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, but God heals everything. So Absolutely. one of the things that happened to you when you were young, well, let me talk about the comparison for just a minute before yes, we go further, because I think as women, we all are guilty of comparing Yes. Sometimes yes. you might not compare your talents with this person, but you might with your looks or with your education or with something. So I've learned that if I compare myself to you, I just measure your best qualities to my worst qualities. And I'm never going to even it out. I'm never going to be as good as you if I just look at your good qualities because I know my bad ones. So I think that's one of the lies that, that Satan has indwelled in us that, that we're not as good as we're not as so in comparing ourselves is, is detrimental. Oh my goodness. Everything we do. What a great analogy because it is true. You know, we compare it like right now, I can very easily compare myself this morning, getting ready before my makeup's on, all my fluff showing, all of that, and be thinking about, man, look at Sue. She looks so put together. Her makeup's always right, her clothing and everything. Standing there, stark naked, putting my makeup on. You know what I'm saying? You're right. It's not an even playing ground. It's, and it's a setup from the enemy to try to beat us down, and he starts mm -hmm. in a 
young, young age with that. You know, I can't tell you over the years of counseling and coaching and ministry with women, I always hear the same lie. I'm not pretty. I'm not lovable, you know, and all these things. He doesn't, he's not creative. So he uses the same line. And, and so if, if God created me to be who I am, why can't I be enough to be who I am? But I forget that. I, I deal with that as, as I think most all women do. Yes, we do. And that's why our identity has to be rooted in Christ alone. Because and we have to do this daily. Yes. We have to remind ourselves daily. Else yes. we get all snowed in and messed mm -hmm. up. That's so true. That's so true. So tell the viewers, Sue, if you will, and I, I know it's a very painful thing and you're many years past in your healing, but something happened. Um, you know, you were a caretaker for your sister. Yes. And um, tell them about what happened with your sister. I was part of a big family and in big families, much like the Amish do today, they, the, the older ones take care of the younger ones. So I was the oldest daughter and I had uh, three siblings and one of those name her name was Ann and she was mine she was my child I didn't give birth to her but she was mine I cut her hair I made her clothes and I was a child myself but I was older and I took care of her well we lived in rural Tennessee we lived um, a couple of hours out and in my beginning of my junior year in high school um, we moved to Nashville my mom had to get a job, um, income. We, we were financially really having a tough time, a really hard time. So my dad rented an, an old house with several families in that house. And so we moved there in August, school was starting and I'm going to this school, but I don't think I ever figured my way around because I was a big shot in the little school and I was a little shot in, in this school <laughs> and I never became comfortable with it. But, but my little sister that was in the third grade, she was nine years old. And uh, well, all of us gathered around the mailbox, other families, other kids, I don't know, there was probably 10 of us. And so we got on the school bus and I was just oblivious to anything going on. And we got down to the next stop and a child near the front of the bus reached down and picked up a shoe. And you know how kids are, kids are kids. And everybody laughed about somebody losing her shoe. Well, I saw the shoe and I didn't cry. I didn't laugh. I cried. I knew that was my sister's shoe, but I didn't know where my sister was. What I didn't know is the bus driver was distracted, didn't have cell phones then, so, but it, apparently, closed the door on her shoe, on her foot, knocked her out of the bus. I ran back up the hill, found my little sister laying in the road. I called my parents, I called the ambulance, uh, but I'm thinking she's gonna be okay. She's gotta be okay, she's gonna be okay. So I called my brother who, who worked in the area and he came and picked us, me and my other siblings up. And so we're on the way to the hospital and he turned on the radio and there was a radio station called WKDA. And every day that a tragedy happened, they waved the black flag. Now I'm saying my sister's gonna be fine. My brothers and sisters are just believing that she's gonna be okay. And the radio station waved the black flag and announced that Desi Ann Smith had been killed. I refused to believe it. I refused to believe it. So I got to the door of the hospital and I could hear my parents wailing, just totally wailing. So it had to be true then. So that afternoon I went home and went to the backyard and I found a stick. I did the only thing I knew to do is I dug a hole and I symbolically buried whatever feelings I had left from the smokehouse, from growing up with having such a tough time with a new school, all the stuff that I had feelings about, I dug a hole and I made a vow that I would never, ever, ever have that kind of pain again. Well, I hung on to that. I had a son, had a daughter. Many years later, I still had those feelings. I, my family never talked about Anne. There was a picture which is hanging on my wall right now it hung up and hung over the fireplace 
but we never talked about Anne. And in those days, there were no counseling. There was no therapy. There was nothing to help us. My parents, excuse me, my parents' friends consoled them. But as children, we were totally ignored. Now, it's just the day. It's just I didn't know any better. Yeah. You know, I have I have another sister. And I didn't realize until a few years later that I had another sister. It was between me and Anne. I never found my sister mm-hmm. because I suffered the loss of Anne. I never found my other sister. We've worked on it. In later years, we've tried to have a relationship. It's not easy because we never came together. None of us came together as children. None of us as parents talked about Anne. And so I'm really sorry that I missed Jane, my other sister. But I didn't realize that until I went through counseling, Maggie. I, I totally believe in counseling and therapy and doing everything you can. And through a troubled marriage, I had a lot of counseling. And so uh, I had a, a daughter. I named her Amanda, but I would call her just, you know, haphazardly. I'd call her Ann. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize what I was doing. But God gave me Amanda to help me work through for a lot of reasons. I'm so grateful for both all of my kids. But Amanda would would say, now, Mom, tell me about Ann. Well, now, how did, tell me about you and Ann. What did you and Ann do? Tell me about Ann. And I wouldn't want to, but she would pull it out of me a little at a time. The child didn't know what she was doing, but God knew. Yes. And every time I get a chance to talk about it, that it was cleansing a little bit. You know, people are uncomfortable. If you're talking to them about pain and you cry a little bit, they're uncomfortable a little bit. And But I found that, that if I had a chance to tell somebody about what happened, and I miss Anne so much today. It's affected my life all these years. But I still have her picture hanging on my wall. And I treasure that. But I also treasure what God gave me, my other sister, my children, the things that kept me heal. Yes. And I think there's a lot of pain. And especially, I don't know about men because I'm not a man, but, but I know women have a lot of pain. They go through a lot of stuff. Yes. And God is a great healer. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. And childhood trauma is real. Grief is hard for an adult, let alone a child. So whenever a child is not taught to process their emotions, it's all stagnant in there. And and it just it's just so difficult. You know, I lost my sister, one of my sisters. I'm the baby of nine kids. I lost one of my sisters a couple years ago. And so so she was in her 60s. I can't even wrap my brain around the loss of a sister at a young age. And I did lose a nephew uh, in his teens and that's tragic. So anytime there's loss and just last month, I lost my sister-in-law. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, the last year has been rough. We've lost a lot of people. Grief is real. But when, a, when you're a child and you're trying to figure out the world and you've got all that pain and you don't know what to do with it. We carry it into our adulthood. It affects and frames how we see the world. Everything of who we are, who we become. So you ended up later on, um, you know, living the perfect life, trying to do everything just right. You know, carrying, smiling. I always say it's smiling on the outside, bleeding on the inside. And, so you ended up seeking out an unhealthy relationship as a result of your low self-image. Is that correct? Well, I think I was sought out because I think people pick up on, you know, I said an alcoholic can walk into a room and know who the other is drawn yes. or it a mate that's wrong. You end up doing the same thing. Well, that reminds me that one of my counselors said, Sue, if you ever, marry again if you ever have another relationship you'll marry the same man again that's right if you don't deal with your stuff you will leave one situation all you do is change their face and name that's what i was taught through counseling so i decided that i would never have another man's shoes under my bed so uh, (laughs) i was going to be i was going to be fine with that i totally was but going back to the beginning of that is is um i started dating um my junior year um all he wanted to do was get married get married get married and i just said no 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 
I'm not got to graduate first. Well, I got married the same week I graduated from high school. Isn't that sad? That is so sad. Um, in the beginning, it wasn't totally awful. I stayed in that marriage 30 years. I was taught you make your bed, you lay in it. Mm. There had never been a divorce in my family. I didn't want to hurt my parents. I didn't want them to know. And so I, I just kept, and, and, and it wasn't, you know, it became worse. And, and I learned along the way that if there's verbal abuse, emotional abuse, then it becomes physical abuse. But by that time, you think you deserve it. And after years and years and years of being put down, told that I was stupid and ugly and all this kind of stuff, you believe those things. Sure. And so when when people look at people in marriages that's, that that's toxic, what they don't realize is that 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 other person can't if, if you're not healthy, you can't make good, healthy decisions. That's right. So I was so unhealthy. And knowing that I'm going to hang on to this marriage, I'm going to hang on. I'm going to do this. And, and I think part of me thought I could fix it. Sure. Um, somebody said to me, well, you were married that long. Looks like you could have hung on longer. And I said, and I would have been dead, you know, and, and but what other people don't understand is what's going on. So I think we have to be careful not to judge other people or not say to people, well, you ought to just leave because people can't just leave. If you're being conditioned after all those years, right. you can't just leave. I work today. You mentioned Morningstar. It's a domestic violence center here in Nashville. And, and those women, I mean, it takes time after time after time leaving and going back because you are so unhealthy that yeah. it's an addiction in a way. Yeah, let's talk about that for a moment because somebody might be watching this broadcast. I'm currently working on an article for Lifeline Mental Health Magazine, and and I, you know, I, I shared with you. So I was struggling with it because it's you know they're wanting to get help for the abuser, but we don't realize what the abuse actually go through. And people say, "Well, why does she stay in that?" Or I wouldn't put up with that and all that. You, you know, can uh, never. Yeah, talk to that for a minute. Go ahead. Well, I became so codependent that. I didn't know where I ended and he began. I didn't, I wasn't able to make any decisions. I wasn't able to think for myself. And so you, you just become sick. Yes. Um, during the process toward the end, I did start attending group. <laughs> group is okay. It's not an ugly word, but it was a codependency group. And I saw these other women that, well, in some cases they've been there way too long. And so when I felt like I was, getting healthier, I decided that I need to leave because I was becoming codependent on these people. So that's kind of a whole different thing. But but codependency is an illness. And and so I think I noticed during some of the process that that my friends were saying things like, Sue, why do you let put up with this? Why do you do this? Why do you do this? And one day a friend of mine came in and brought me a book. And it's called Codependency No More by Melanie. Oh, Melanie. Yeah, Melanie. Good book. I read the book and my eyes were opened. It gave me hope because for the first time I realized it was a disease. It's a sickness. And, you know, it was not brought on by chemical dependency. It was brought on by a controlling, manipulative, unhealthy relationship that, that you can't function on your own. I couldn't suggest anything. I I didn't, I had to start believing that I didn't know anything. And I lived like that for a while. Uh, realized after a period of time that that wasn't working either. So I had to decide, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna grow as a person. And I realized at that point that if I grew as a person, that it would be detrimental to my marriage. And it was. But Let's talk about codependency for a minute, Sue. So some of the viewers are probably thinking, well, I can't be codependent because I'm not married to an alcoholic or an addict or anything like that. Share about codependency so that the viewers have a clear view of what it is and what it's not. Well, I think in my case, in a lot of cases, we're kind of set up to live that to be codependent because yes. we didn't talk about real things in my house. We didn't take issues. We didn't discuss those things. Um, 
there's just so many things that that was unhealthy about that that I didn't realize. But but when you're in a codependent relationship, I don't know, you may know some people who can't think for themselves. They can't decide if they're going to the store at two o'clock or three o'clock. They can't decide if they're going to go to this place or that place because they have to clear it with somebody. So right. what I learned to do is whatever the situation was, I played it over in my mind. I came up with a reaction from the other person. It was a game I had to play because this would be the least of the evils if I did it this way. So if I told it this way or told it, today or tomorrow, whatever, when you have to check yourself to see what you're going to speak when you're speaking in truth. So I became two people, Maggie, mm -hmm. in the process of living a codependent life. I became two people. I was one person at home. People could tell by the sound of my voice if I was in the house yeah. and if, if he was there or if I was on a business appointment I sounded differently I when I would pull in the driveway this is crazy but when I pull in the driveway I would take my jacket off we wore suits a lot then so I'd take off my jacket so it would be less intimidating I tried to be the little housewife mm -hmm. I tried to act like I didn't know anything um and so being two people is exhausting you know <laughs> one person is exhausting let alone two <laughs> like, which role am i playing here uh yeah well you know there is there is uh years ago whenever um in college i you know learned a lot about this like the stockholm syndrome where your captor you know uh -huh. the person that is abusing you the person that is you know wearing you down and so forth we begin to kind of almost sympathize with them uh -huh. so if someone well let's say if 10 years into your marriage if someone would have said you need to get out of this because he is uh controlling narcissistic abusive whatever what would your response have been early in the relationship? I think even then I was blinded to sure. all of that. My mom would say, well, he's, he talked really bad to you. He talked really ugly to you. And I would say, oh, mom, it's just the way he is. Yeah. So I would dismiss it. I would dismiss it. And even later on when it became really bad and he did some really bad things and, and, was very flippant about these things. And, and I was like, well, before I would have thought a woman surely wouldn't live in that, you know, surely to goodness. But I did because I had life's commands. You have to realize that once you have life's commands, you make your bed, you lay in it. You, you, you don't divorce. This is what you've chosen. This is what you do. It's very difficult to change that. And I'll tell you a day that that really opened my eyes. My mom and dad lived lived a, a, a very sheltered life. They were not exposed to a lot of stuff and they're all both gone now. But I called them and I said, I have to talk to you. So back in the day, you know, not a lot of restaurants, but there was a Shoney's near there where they lived. And so I had a friend meet me and I have to tell you about the friend a little bit, but um, I said, Daddy, I have to tell you something. And he said, honey, I know. Mm. I got furious. And I said, Daddy, who have you been talking to? Who told you? How did you know? And he said, honey, God told me. Mm. So even though I thought I was hiding things from them, I was hiding from other people, my parents knew and I didn't know that they knew. Wow. Now, I want to share a little bit about the friend that I took with me. Her name is Patty. And I, um, during the roughest time of my life, when my whole world was falling apart and I was putting on the best face I could, I was doing all I could do. My, my friend, I had gone to church with many years before, but we were not really that close. We didn't know each other that well, but her and her husband owned a super D that was, you know, a drugstore several years ago and, and they owned the Super D. So I went by Super D to say hello to my friend Patty. Somehow I ended up in her back room sitting on a box. And Patty looked at me and she said, Sue, what is it going to take? 
Well, I knew what Patty meant. I needed to get right with God. I needed to get right. For months after that, God would wake Patty up and call me crazy hours to check on me because she knew stuff was going on. She knew that I was in danger. She knew that stuff was going on. But before she said, Sue, what is it going to take? She didn't know anything because mm -hmm. we'd not been together. I hadn't talked to her in years. She was just somebody I respected. And I went by to say hello. And she said, so to that, I say to people, what is it going to take for you? Mm -hmm. What is it going to take for you to wake up and to get yourself right? Mm -hmm. I did totally surrender even though i had made a profession of faith and was baptized as a young kid this time it was different because i totally surrendered and it was like all at once i saw things differently i wanted different things i was it was exciting and, and it still is but you know that new time is is really special but i owe so much to my friend patty god used patty to say those few words, what is it going to take? Mm. And I knew They're what. Powerful words. They're yeah. powerful words that we all have to ponder. If she'd been around me, if she'd known anything that was going on, it would have been a little different, but she didn't know anything. And so I treasure that. Wow. You know, I when we're in the area of codependency, it's so we're, you know, we get in the forest, we can't see the trees. We don't realize we're there. It's survival mode. Right, You're trying right. to control everything around you because everything is so out of control inside. And, you know, I tell people years ago when I was a teen, I did a lot of experimental stuff before I had kids. I was, you know, drug abuse was common for me. I mean, I just, that's how I checked out. I buried my feelings under, you know, the uh, influence. And so when I became a codependent, I was much sicker than I ever was as an addict. I'm serious. Right. It made me crazy. I was a crazy woman. Crazy. And so I can totally relate to that. And I read that Melody Beatty book, you know, oh. years ago. And uh, it probably saved my ex-husband's life. <laughs> um, I, and I know your husband's in law enforcement, so I didn't kill anybody. So. <laughs> Father, though, went to his grave because at one time, um, my ex, he shot himself as an attempt to manipulate and control a situation to get me to stay out of sympathy. And when that happened, Sue, everybody thought I shot him, you know? Oh my goodness. Yeah. And so my dad went to his grave thinking that I shot my ex-husband and I really didn't, you know, I wanted to, I thought about it and I actually was so sick in my mind that uh, codependency took me to a place when I started college and I was a nursing major, I was thinking, I wonder how I could kill him. And I'm, I'm saying this is awful um, without getting caught. And <laughs> I was so full of anger and hurt and pain uh, from all the repressed feelings of having to look okay and having to take care of the kids and dealing with my mom dying of cancer and going through cancer myself. It was ridiculous. And so then I got to the point where I would go in my backyard and I started this hole in between my shed and my house. I had a hole <laughs> and I would envision myself digging this hole to put his body in that. That's sick. That's, that's it. And, he was, you know, he, and another time I went to a uh, crack house and ripped the door off the hinges. Sue. That's how sick I was with control, trying to control it, trying to fix him because I wasn't going to be OK unless he was OK. Yeah, right. You can't say so codependency will take you to a dark place. It totally and, will. Yeah, it really will. So either you will shut down and try to create a facade and live a double life. Everything's okay. I've got this Which under control. Mm -hmm. Right. Or you will try to go off the deep end. And so I got really sick and I'm, you know, ashamed of the things that I said and did, you know, and it's not easy to say, hey, I was like so crazy. But what I remember I went to an Al Anon meeting. And I resented the fact that these ladies were okay. I'm like, how can you be happy? Don't you want to take your husband out? This is ridiculous. <laughs> this financial pain. They're called emotional, you know, trauma to our kids. What is wrong with you? There's uh -huh. not I'm here to find out how to fix him or kill him. Either one. It's mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. I know that sounds terrible. So, so, so how did you get out? How did you get well, out of that situation? Well, well, before we go there, if I, if I could just sure. say something about the red flags of, of being with an abusive person. Yes. 
absolutely I tell you a whole list of things to watch out for but if 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 you know that there's some red flags i just want to say this to the people watching go online just type in red flags yes and, and and domestic violence and you'll get a list of things check those off and see how many of those is happening to you because so many people i mean when i entered into the marriage so young i had the red flags but i didn't know anything about what to look for i didn't know those things so now looking back my, my hope is i can help somebody else before they go there before they get into a situation that they can't get out of because it's not about love it's about power and control and manipulation that's what the whole thing is about so we understand that so okay i'll take your question i just wanted yeah, to know i just want to, I want you to share with us how you got out of the abusive situation because we know that that is a process and preparation so how did you get out how i got out was i went it was a, a Thursday night. I went to my codependency group. I was threatened. He said, if you go to that thing that you talk, said you were going to go to, I'm going to leave. He would threaten me all the time, all the time. Yeah. So, excuse me. I went anyway, work nights. So I would go and come back and not say anything about it. So I was there that Thursday night. I went to sleep and God revealed to me if you have to run, this is where you go. This is the route you take. I was preparing to go on a business trip. I was on my way to Atlanta the next morning. I had my clothes were in the car. I had things, my purse at the door, all that. <clears throat> so he, he kind of had this thing about I had to be in the room with him when he ate. So we're sitting in the living room. He's eating his cereal, but I have to be in the room. And he's eating his cereal. And now I, I've learned some things this group and so he said I ought to just kill you any other time I probably would have just joked or went on about it nothing and I I said I stood up and I knew I was in trouble then and I went to the kitchen and I said that's not acceptable and I knew I'd crossed the line I knew I broke the door and so he came into the kitchen and he said it again with a lot of anger. Well, what am I going to do? I had run before. I'd hid in the backyard. I had hidden places. I'd gone to friends' houses and hung out to get away. So I ran to the door, picked up my keys and my purse and ran to my car. He follows me, stands behind my car. I'm easing back. Didn't think that much about it. Go on to where God told me to go. God told me to go. It was a block or two, three or four blocks away. And I was at a red light and I looked up and I saw a police car. Mm -hmm. And I sat down on my horn. Immediately, Maggie, immediately, there must have been 10 police cars surrounding me. Totally surrounding my car. So here he comes. He tries to get into my car and I've got it locked. He can't get in and he gets angry. So he's going to go back and get his key to my car. But instead of doing that, he takes one of the policemen to the back. I didn't know this was happening until later. And he told the policeman that I tried to run over him. On <laughs> a car that's moving back, you know, whose fault is that? Well, they didn't believe it. And so I convinced them that it was going to be okay. I would go on my trip. He would be fine. It would be okay. I, I, I was fine. And they all left except this one uh, woman policeman, little bitty woman, nailed down beside my car. And she got in my face and she took her finger and she said, lady, let me tell you how it is. She said, if you don't go downtown right now and get an order of protection, when you come back in a couple of days, it's too late. you got to do it right now. Well, I knew that if you take that step, it's going to get worse. Yes. I knew that that would really anger him. And I'd never been anywhere. He didn't know where I was. So, of course, back then without cell phones, I let him know, you know, the phone number where I am or the hotel where I am. 
anyway, I went downtown, did that, and it was much more cumbersome than it is today. It was very difficult today. And working with a domestic violence center, I've learned a lot of what they do today. That's so much better. But I, I called a friend and she met me and we went downtown together and, and did that. Now, I don't know what happened with that and him after I left. But I'm in my meetings. I'm at sleeping at night. He calls the phone repeatedly, 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 repeatedly. In a couple of days, I come home. And I, at that point, I didn't know what I was going to do. I'd always gone home before. I, you know, when, that's home. That's your stuff. That's your clothes. That's everything. Sure. And what am I going to do? So I knew I drove a pink Cadillac. So I knew that he would find me if if I was where he would, could see it. And and so I called another friend and she met me and I'd have a plan. So I'd heard about domestic violence centers. I'd heard about shelters. So <laughs> this will sound funny, but I took a quarter or whatever to a phone booth and made the call. Uh, so many things have changed, but I called and they were very kind. But the lady said, we don't have any rooms. I'm sorry, we don't have any beds. Well, I'd heard that they could help you. And so, but she said, do you have access to any money? Do you have access to a credit card? And one of the things that abusers do is they take your money away. Mm, yeah. And I had a card that he didn't know about. So I said, yes, I do. So I drove to the little suburb of, of Nashville drove around the hotel a dozen times before I got myself to go in. I went there, spent the night feeling so awful, awful because I didn't go home. And I made a commitment that I would go to this certain church. I didn't want to go to the church that we went to. I wanted to go to this other church. I made a commitment. I was going to go there. So I went there and what after the service was over this couple came up befriended me took me home with them took me to their apartment i lived with them for a few weeks wow until i got myself an apartment i had the clothes that i'd had on the trip and that was it wow so i called i called a policeman and said can you go with me to the house to get some clothes and they said lady we're not supposed to do that they did they stood outside while I went in the house and got some clothes. Mm -hmm. So in my book, I talk about I had a papa's on chair and a few clothes. And that's all I had. I lived in a one bedroom apartment for four years. I was totally, it's unbelievable how peaceful I felt. I felt mm -hmm. so at peace. Yes. Because you see, I've been going through this other for so long. I knew all that pain. I knew all that hurt. And so um, I had a workplace away from, from my apartment and I'd go to work half a day and then I come home and sleep. So I slept the first year every afternoon because I was so exhausted. Yes. And after four years, I dusted myself off and well, I started working more and more and, and decided I'd build a house. And so that's the house that I live in today that, Dwayne and I live in. God has blessed me so much with Dwayne McGray. Um, he brought a daughter to the marriage. I have a daughter and a son, and we have five grandchildren. They happen to come from my side, but they're his grandchildren too. But he's been a dad to these children and a granddad to these grandchildren. And I'm so grateful. Why would God love me that much mm. to bless me this much? I don't know but I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful. And my prayer is that if my story can help somebody else have courage yes, and, and whatever it takes and don't listen to other voices. I think that's really important that you don't listen to all these people who know all the answers. Let God tell you what to do. Depend right. on him to tell you the answers because people would say, Oh, so you need to be happy. Oh, so this, Oh, I couldn't listen to them because when I made the move, when I didn't go back, I had no regrets. That's right. And that's been 23 years now. Well, longer than that. Dwayne and I will be married 23 years. So I have no regrets because I did everything I could do. And I think that's my 
my message to other women that I can never encourage you to leave. I can never encourage divorce. Right. You have to work that through with the good Lord. Yes. But there is help out there. There's encouragement out there. There, there is help and there is encouragement. And, you know, a lot of times women is set, feel stuck because they feel like the pressures, but God, Jesus did not go to the cross for you to be mistreated. He came, went to the cross for you to be free. And, you know, I have met Dwayne and I, I just think you guys are the cutest couple. <laughs> I just love it. I've been in your home and I, I just I see the two of you interacting is such a beautiful thing. I'm so grateful to God that he redeemed that because like you, I didn't plan on getting remarried. <laughs> I didn't. It was God's ideal. You know, it was up to me. I was just going to stay single. I was going to be like the oh, apostle. Oh. I was just going to do my ministry gig. And, you know, the last thing I had on my radar. But whenever you are loved unconditionally and you are treated the way that God intended for you to treat it yeah. and you have that protection and that coverage, yeah. it's just amazing. Yeah. You know, yeah. And so, but you've got to work through the process. So for those of you that are thinking that it's just snap like that, no, it's not. No, it's not. It, it takes support. It takes counseling. You know, it takes a long time. You've got to deal with those things and look yourself in the eye. And, you know, Sue's got beautiful pictures there behind her. And I just want to point this out because healing is so important. And the one directly behind her is her self-portrait of her. I love that with the hat. Everything with her is a hat. The, the cover of her book has got the hat. Her logo has the hat. And I love that. So I just love that. But I encourage you to get Sue's book. The one, the other, and her, she's not selling her art yet. But I want you to watch in the future for that because she's got some mad skills. I'm just saying they're amazing. The other one is the back of her granddaughters. And I, you know, throughout her home, she's got amazing art that she's created. And I'm like, Sue, this is crazy. Awesome. <laughs> she's not ready to sell it yet, but she got us used to, it to be therapeutic in her life. So whatever it is, whether it's music therapy, art therapy, Along with that, okay, get your counseling. And I'm telling you, it should be a requirement of life. I totally believe that. Yes. I totally believe yes. that. It really should be a requirement of life. And I love, Sue, that this generation is not so much about um, as bad as your generation or even my generation as far as the stigma. There is not a stigma anymore. It's, you know, I hear young millennials say, well, you need to go have some counseling sessions over that, you know, and I'm so grateful for that because it is important. You know, it's not saying there's something wrong with you. It's saying that I want to get things right with me. And, and so it's important. And, you know, what I found is, is counselors and therapists don't tell you the answers. They let you figure it out. You talk through it and you find the answers within yourself. Absolutely. It's not what they're going to tell you. Yes. They're good listeners, though. Yes. They're going to make suggestions, mm -hmm. but you are going to have to do the work. They can't do the work for you. And help you see things that you didn't see before. That's exactly right. Well, Sue, I am so grateful for you. If I was to ask you, uh, and because we could talk about this topic for hours. Yes, forever. Important topic. Domestic. Right now, because people are uh, sheltered in, in, at home, there is a rise of domestic violence. My heart breaks every day and my prayers are going out to the children who are caught mm -hmm. in the homes with their abusers yeah. right now because yeah. they can't get out. Where school is the place where they get their food and they get a little bit of break from either the, the emotional, sexual, financial, uh, you know, all of the different aspects. There's so many aspects of abuse and we focus mostly on emotional, psychological and physical during this uh, broadcast. But there are lots of different types of abuses and you do need to look for the signs because if you are blinded and you think that that's the normal, it's not the normal. Right. So, so if you were to give them a key to carry on, what would you say to the viewer, something to help them and encourage them today with the key? You know, Maggie, we talked about comparing yourselves and I might not have this talent over here. I might not have this. You know, there's always somebody with bigger, better stuff. So what God has given me as kind of a platform, I guess, is whatever we've been given is what someone else needs. Mm, whatever good. we've been given. So whatever I've been given, it's up to me to share those things. And it's so easy for me to think, well, I don't have this degree after my name, or I don't have this over here. I don't have that, but whatever it is that, that I've been given. Yes. Is what somebody else needs. 
Oh, that's so good. That is so good. And that is what is important about healthy relationships is that iron sharpening iron, that working together. Yes. For the goodness. Yes. Well, listen, y'all, I am going to be I am uh, Sue and I are both on a lineup in September, I believe, for Women of Focus It's going to be here in Tennessee. More information will be coming out about that. I encourage you that if you are in the Middle Tennessee area, you come out to this conference. We're we're hoping and praying that it will be done. It is. Uh, is it Springfield Baptist Church? Springfield. Yes. 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 And, uh, we are both on different panels, if you will, about important topics. So I'm talking about prayer. Sue, what is your topic? You know, I don't even recall right this second. <laughs> they gave good stuff. It's not on my head right now. But there is some really great keynote speakers as well. You can Google it at Women of Focus. You can go to the Facebook page and like it. Sue also has a plethora of um, just goodness in her. So if you ever have the opportunity to hear her speak, I encourage you to get out there. And Sue, do you ever think about writing another book or no? No, really. Not really? No. Okay, well, I want you to get this I have entertained the idea, but I don't think so. Okay, this book right here. Okay, you can get it on Amazon and where else, Sue? Can they get it on your website? You can get it on my website. It's um, suezmagray.com. Just take my name and .com um, or Amazon. Absolutely. It's in some bookstores, but you know, going to a bookstore is a whole different thing right now. So Amazon or on my website. Yes, absolutely. If you order it through my website, I'll sign it. There you go. There you go. And if for someone is um, uh, needing help from a domestic situation, Sue, if they were to private message you, would you be able to send them the resources they need? Yes. Absolutely. I love that. Love that about Sue. She's full of many gifts and talents. She's my dear friend. I'm so glad that God has put her in my life. And Sue, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for taking the time to be real with the audience. I want to thank you for um, just always shining in the light of Jesus and hope and healing in family. So y'all join us next week. I have Patricia Douglas. Uh, Patricia is an amazing uh, minister and prayer warrior. She's going to be joining us next week. Catch us on Keys to Your Best Life. Like, follow, share with your viewers. And y'all have a blessed day. Thank you, Maggie. Thank you, Sue. You're loved. <laughs> I love you, sweet sister. Thank you. Thank you.